Sometimes you want a book that you can savor and relish every word on every page. Other times you want a novel that delivers all those warm and fuzzy feelings. And then there are those days when you want to read a story that keeps you on the edge of your seat as you compulsively turn every page until the very end. This week, we're featuring two nail-biting thrillers that, if you're like me, you'll bang through in one sitting. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this is Chapter 182 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I don't know about you, but there is nothing scarier to me than being in the middle of nowhere, miles away from help. It's that kind of setting that serves as the backdrop for The Last Thing to Burn, the new thriller from UK author Will Dean. The story centers around a Thai woman who's being held captive on an isolated farm in the English countryside by the monster of a man who kidnapped her. Her attempts to escape have ended in brutal punishment, and she's close to giving up when something happens that changes her whole perspective. Will tells me the whole book came to him over the course of one night. It did, yeah. It, it was a strange experience. It's never happened before. It'll probably never happen again. But I had the idea at midnight one night in 2016. My wife was asleep and I just had this image in my head of this tiny little farm house, farm cottage, two bedrooms upstairs, two rooms downstairs, at the center of a vast isolated farm. And I saw in my mind's eye a woman from, from an aerial perspective and she was walking in and out of the house and around it, but she never went very far away. And I came to understand that morning between midnight and 6 a.m. that she was desperate to leave this place and she could not get away. And I wanted to understand her story. And by kind of 6 a.m., I had the whole narrative arc of the story. But it still took me five years to finish the book. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking to me now from the middle of the woods in Sweden. How much did that isolated setting affect the setting of your book? That's an interesting question. I think it helps, in a way, me to kind of empathize with that main character, to understand what it's like to not have help at hand. Like, if I have an accident here, a fire truck can't get through my forest track to get to where I live. The the police will have a difficulty finding where we are because we kind of live off-grid in the middle of nowhere. So I understand that that sense of kind of having to be resilient on your own in a place, which is quite rare these days. And I certainly never had that growing up. I never had it living in London, but I have it now. And yeah, I Your connection froze up a little bit. That's my forest broadband for you. No, I figured that's what it was. (laughs) Um, So the last thing I heard you say was you didn't have that living in London, but you kind of have that living now. Yeah, exactly. And I was going on to say that the book has been likened to Misery by Stephen King and Room by Emma Donoghue. But in a way, the main character's situation is worse because in this book, she can see safety in the distance. You know, the, the landscape is so flat that she can see like six or seven different church spires in the distance on the horizon. She can see traffic and trucks and cars, but she can never quite reach it. So that safety is kind of dangled in front of her, but she can never quite get there. And I think, too, she's also maybe more isolated than than some people because she's a victim of sex trafficking and is completely alone in where she winds up. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is an awful situation. And I had a knot in my stomach the entire time writing the first draft and, and every subsequent draft and read through more than any book I've ever written. I was so invested in this main character and worried about 
you know, and I was always so emotional by the time we get to the end because, she, like you say, she is completely alone in this place. And not only is she alone, but she's alone with a, effectively a monster living in this house who is probably the worst character I will ever write, I can imagine. Were you able to sleep at night? Like, it just feels like with, with so much darkness and evil, you'd have to do something like purge yourself of that when you were done writing for the day. It's kind of the opposite, to really? be honest. I, I, yeah, I have to stay in her head the whole time. So I, I kind of stayed, stayed in her head through the night. You know, I woke up thinking about the next scene. And when I finished writing a chapter in the morning, I would stay thinking about the next scene and the landscape and the time of year and what she was having to endure. And that's the only way I can write a first draft. It's a really, it's like an exorcism. You know, the, the voice bursts out of me. It's not a very healthy process. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but it's, it's the only way I can do it. But like you say, it is, it is quite bleak in places, but then there are hints of beauty and of lightness. And that's what kept me going. The fact that she never gave up hope. She's probably the strongest character I've ever, I've ever written. And, you know, she takes hope from tiny things like her copy of, of Mice and Men that she rereads, the letters from her sister, the photo of her parents. And later on, once she has a child, the, the, the huge, powerful love that she has for that child, and she'll do anything to protect that child. I thought it was interesting that at, at some point in the narrative, you hit upon this missing white woman syndrome which if people aren't familiar with that, it's this idea that uh, white women who go missing end up getting more media attention uh, as opposed to people of minorities. And your character is Thai. She, she came here, she came to that country illegally. And, you know, she's been missing for years and nobody knows. And it isn't until someone else goes missing that the pressure really ramps up. Was that intentional on your part to do it that way? Yeah, I mean, my whole process isn't particularly kind of conscious. It's more subconscious. But I've written about that phenomenon before in another book. So it's definitely something that kind of angers me. And that's something I don't find shocking. And that's the most appalling thing about it is that it's so prevalent and it happens everywhere. And I see it, you know, I see as someone goes missing, there's no noise about it at all on the media. And then a white person goes missing. And then there's huge local interest, national interest. I just find it a horrific reality of modern life. And those horrific realities, I think, need to be reflected in fiction so that we can kind of look at it from different angles and see how we can improve things and move forward. So the title, The Last Thing to Burn, refers to this practice of, of burning your main character's personal items when she, quote unquote, misbehaves or tries to run away. And it, start, it starts to become impossible choice as her few precious things start to whittle down. Have you thought what the very last item would be for you? What would you hang on to to that very end? That's a great question. I, mean, I don't know. Um, thank goodness that we don't have to be put in this situation. Um, I mean, aside from my son and my wife and my St. Bernard dog, I don't know, something personal, something, you know, those little personal things that can't be replaced, I guess. I don't know what it would be. I think it would be something like a, a picture that my son drew or something like that. Something very simple that means a lot to me. Um, but that, that idea of possession and her having so few possessions relative to Len, this man, this monster, is, a, is like a recurring theme in the book. And I just think that that is also a, an experience that some people have when they are trafficked or when they travel across the world. They don't have many things, so they take on greater significance to them. And for him to ask her to choose which of these 
item, she only has four possessions at the beginning of the book, should be burnt. It's just horrific. I mean, it's truly nightmarish. Do you want readers to, to finish reading this and think about how lucky they are in the situation they may find themselves in? I don't know. I never, I never think about that. I never think about how I want a reader to feel. Um, I don't know. I think all fiction, you know, I'm a huge reader first and foremost. And for me, reading is just about empathizing better with other people and understanding what it means to be human and trying to live a hundred lives in one lifetime. That's what it's about. So I guess what we're all trying to do through fiction is to, is to kind of be entertained and learn and grow at the same time. So I, I am getting a lot of letters and emails at the moment. The book has been out a few months now in the UK and Australia and New Zealand, South Africa, and I'm getting letters complaining that um, I've ruined the next day at work because they couldn't sleep because they had to read it in one day or one sitting, which which I've never had before. And that's very nice to hear as a writer. Uh, complaints about ruining in a day, but in a positive way. That's That's something to be said. I mean, you tapped into like my fear of living in the middle of nowhere because I couldn't even imagine being somewhere and, and not having help be nearby since I live in the middle of a big city. So for me, that keeps me up a little bit too. Well, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that landscape is where I'm from. That's where I was brought up in the Fens, this kind of blue collar agricultural area with flatlands and nothing there. And I find, I find that landscape very eerie and kind of beautiful and, and quite scary. And and you haven't gone far. You may have changed countries, but you still find yourself drawn to that like naturalistic isolation. Yeah, I like living a kind of simple, old-fashioned, low-cost, kind of quiet, nature-filled uh, life. But at the same time, I'm surrounded by tens of thousands of trees now. And that's really quite different. Like, I feel very safe for some reason, surrounded by trees and moose and nature. So... I, I don't like so much that flat agricultural landscape of the UK where, I don't know, I feel it, it can be quite intimidating knowing that people can see you from every angle. Like Len on his farm, he can always see her. And that lack of privacy, that lack of um, her having any sense of privacy was also terrifying to me. The fact that wherever he goes on his farm, he can look back and see her. That's terrifying for all of us. I think, I think so. And I think if, uh, if, People are looking for a book to, to keep them up all night because, number one, it's a little terrifying, and number two, it's just so good. They should pick up the last thing to burn. Will Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. There's been a boom in the number of smart home security systems available in recent years, from video doorbells to indoor and outdoor cameras that you can monitor from your phone. The configurations are endless. And while I totally understand the appeal, have you ever thought about the freedom you might be trading away in exchange for feeling safe? Author Kate Hollihan has, and she raises the issue in her new domestic thriller, Her Three Lives. What do you think readers should know about Her Three Lives before picking up the book? Well, I think they should know that it is a, it's a suspense story that's going to hopefully keep them up at night. I'm hoping they want that, but if they don't, then <laughs> <laughs> maybe don't pick up the book. And I think they should uh, They should also know that it's set uh, in current day. So uh, we, it references a lot of the smart home technologies that we currently use and um, kind of our uneasy relationship with all of uh, the surveillance technology and all these screens. I'm glad you brought that up because that is 
really my next question. So as a result of a, a violent home invasion, your main character, Greg, installs this boatload of security cameras with bells and whistles, and we get to see him become increasingly obsessed with what these cameras show and or don't show. You really draw a fine line between wanting to be safe and starting to tip into paranoia. Yes. And, you know, it's funny, that comes from my own life a bit. I guess it was these five years now, but when we moved into our, our house, my kids were younger. And so we had cameras on the inside of the house as well as the outside, you know, just in case the kids were, they wake up and they're scared. And so, you know, it's just like, like baby monitors, essentially. And uh, when I started to write this book, I was thinking, geez, I still have all these cameras up and they would notify me if like my 10 year old walked into a room. I'm going, that can't be you know, psychologically good for anybody, right? If they feel like they're always monitored or could be monitored by their parents and you'd get these alerts on your phone. And so I started to think like, well, what happens when people become so obsessive about seeing all of this stuff that they could start misinterpreting or and reading into things that their loved ones are doing? And so uh, that's that was kind of the germ of it, because I do think, um, you know, with all the, the Nest cams and the ring doorbells and the, the smart home tech that we have, it can be kind of easy to uh, to spend a lot of time monitoring our stuff you know, <laughs> and the people in our lives. Now, Jade is your female main character, and she and Greg actually spend a lot of time on their phones, whether it's watching these security feeds or, in Jade's case, creating content for her popular blog And while I was reading the book, I couldn't help but think how some of their problems might have been resolved if they would just put the phones down and talk to each other. Yes, no, that's true. But I think that maybe that was a little bit of the um, of the current circumstances with the pandemic kind of sneaking into the book where we feel so glued to these devices and uh, separated in some way from one another. And so what are the, the complications of that? You know, it's true that sometimes they could just sit there and say, hey, um, you know, imagine that Greg had done that and said, hey, listen, I, I noticed you did something on the camera and like, tell me about it. Like, what is that? But then there's this feeling of he didn't he doesn't want to do that because then he has to admit that he's been spying on his fiance using these cameras. And, you know, she doesn't want she wants her own private life and doesn't want to feel like she's constantly surveyed. So, um, you know, she's not telling him everything. And I think uh I also, you know, the book is Her Three Lives because of this quote from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, where he says, everyone has three lives, uh, public, private, and secret. And I think that that's kind of the real tension of this technology is it, it blurs the lines between that. And we all kind of do need those three separate spaces. We need the time where it's just, you know, us in our own head, right? And the, the thoughts and, and feelings and, and actions we don't share with anyone. And then we have the next level where we open up to those in our uh, intimate circle and then we have our public life and what happens when that all gets blurred because of social media and all this other technology. And it isn't always uh, as nefarious as a result as it is in your book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, I do write thrillers. So, uh, you know, it's a, I have to amp up the tension. I do think that um, suspicion begets suspicion, right? And you know, it, it reminded me of... Um, the ring doorbells or, or sometimes I guess it's just doorbell cameras, a lot of them have these social networks, right? And people think they're being helpful and they say, oh, I think I saw something suspicious. And in some cases, it turned out they were like reporting their neighbors who had just like walked, you know, 
in front of the house and they're caught on night vision or something and maybe the person's walking the dog and somebody so basically they're profiling their neighbors based on behavior or in some cases perceived uh, perceived race or ethnicity and think of all that distrust and these are people that live in the same community you know and that's been meanwhile had they just stuck their head out the door and said hey maybe the person was gonna oh hi bob you know you so. really do tap into like how much we've given away in exchange for quote unquote being safe yes and, and convenience right this this convenience of oh well i mean hey i'm on i'm actually on vacation and and i love being able to monitor my house remotely right if there's any problem even if it's um, oh, the boiler burst, you know, you feel like you could get on that. But then there's these consequences to having that convenience, that always being plugged in convenience. Now, is it true that some details of your personal life made it into Jade's character and her background? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm um, I'm Jamaican and Irish American. And so I made Jama- Jade Jamaican American. And so uh, I got to, you know, put some of... Uh, the Jamaican culture that I've grown up with through my mother. And I actually also have my Jamaican citizenship because um, I have a descendant through my mom. I tend to, to have diverse casts in my book because I think I grew up in a, actually in a multiracial family. So I'm used to, to me, what seems normal or very, is living in a diverse neighborhood and, and families bringing a lot of different cultures into play. And so I always try and tap into that in my books. But I think um, this was the first time where I really had a Jamaican-American main character. Now, I remember the last time we spoke that you mentioned stalking Zillow in order to come up with the incredible houses that you always feature in your books. This book is no exception. Did you do that again? Um, you know what? It was even worse. I, I completely found this house and this um, there's a, an architect that... Uh, designed houses that I like, and I kind of lifted the house whole hog from the <laughs> website. I mean, I wonder if they'll sit there and they'll be like, we designed that house. I'm like, yes, you did. And I really enjoyed looking at it for three straight months. You know? I love that. <laughs> I, I should have given them a credit and been like, if you're interested in the house in this book, I think it was for sale. <laughs> it's a gorgeous sounding house. Although I have to admit, all those windows... That creeps me out. Yeah. And, you know, there is I, I do put a lot of windows in my houses, and I think it's because of that adage of, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And obviously my characters throw stones all the time. So, like, <laughs> uh, so I, I do like this idea of we, we create these intimate spaces, but then we allow people all these ways of looking in. And so it's kind of a metaphor. And also probably I'm attracted to architecture with lots of windows. So does that mean you've you've picked out the next house for your next book? Yes, actually, it's um, it's a carriage house in Manhattan, <laughs> and it's, it's Zillow right now for more than I could afford. It's like five million dollars, but um, you know, I'm, I should actually that reminds me, I should screenshot it because if anyone buys it, they're going to take it off the site. So. <laughs> you know, I've always said if I won the lottery, I would buy a Manhattan carriage houses. Those are my favorite too. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah, um, I do. And it was fun having this, this in this book, Greg is an architect. And so I got to actually, I talked to some people who were architects and tried to kind of get in that headspace. So it wasn't just admiring the beautiful houses. I tried to kind of understand who are some of the personalities that create these beautiful houses. 
Well, I love the houses. I love the characters. And this story had me obsessively turning pages until the very, very end. Good. I'm glad. That's what I want to hear. We've been talking with Kate Hollihan. The new book is Her Three Lives. Thank you for spending some time with us on your vacation. Thank you for having me. It's great. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Before I go, I should mention that if you want to hear more from Kate Hollihan, she'll be appearing virtually at an event at the Princeton Club on April 28th. As for us, we're always on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.